1693 in the colonies, and tensions are high. In and around the area of Salem, Massachusetts, there have been numerous witch trials over the past year, and at the helm of the accusations are a group of young girls. Children, really. During the trials, as accused witches come in, the girls shriek and claim to be pinched, pricked, or have their hair pulled by the witches' specters. They would claim a cat was scratching them, and the cat was controlled by the witch. By the end of it all, 20 accused witches hung. And it was the accusations of these children that really sealed their fates. Had the witches been accused earlier in the century, they may not have hung. But you see, there was a court case in 1612 that changed everything. A court case an entire ocean away. A world away, really. A witchcraft case in the county of Lancashire in the north of England, where the accusations and testimony of a single child were used in a court of law to prove the guilt of someone. Something that wasn't the done thing before. A case so heavily documented that the men presiding over the trials in Salem, Massachusetts, used it as a guide. The Pendle Witch Trials. My name is Caitlin Badger, and this is Northern, a podcast exploring the history, stories, landscapes, and people of the north of England in an attempt to discover and share what it means to be Northern. So it's 1612. The romance and inventiveness of the Renaissance has changed Europe. But now, now the Reformation is sweeping through Britain, stamping out the old mystic ways, the old Catholic ways, and demanding a new age of strict Protestantism and reason, at least in the cities. Seven years ago down in London, Catholic plotters tried to blow up Parliament and came incredibly close to succeeding. This gunpowder plot, as it's known, left the government and royalty uneasy. Uneasy about the heretics lying underneath the surface of Reformation England, especially King James, who sits on the throne. James who was the King of Scotland and is now James I of England, is both fascinated and terrified by witches. Years ago, in 1597, he published a book, Demonology. The British Library describes that demonology asserts James's full belief in magic and witchcraft and aims to both prove the existence of such forces and to lay down what sort of trial and punishment these practices merit. Demonology takes the form of a dialogue and is divided into three sections, the first on magic and necromancy, that is, communicating with the dead, the second on witchcraft and sorcery, and the third on spirits and specters. So while the king was decidedly against witchcraft, 
folk magic was still very much a part of everyday life for people throughout the country, especially in the rural areas, which Pendle, where our story takes place today, was. Practicing witches, which have gone by so many names throughout history and still do, they were commonly referred to then as cunning folk, and they were important figures in their communities. As an expert in the field said, these cunning folk provided many services, but the most important magical service provided by them was that of healing, and their value in this respect cannot be overemphasized. They gave prayers, herbs, and magical concoctions to help solve problems and take care of issues. The average lifespan of people in 16th and 17th century Britain was just under 40 years. Outbreaks of disease and poor living conditions, as well as a dependence on your own crops, meant that people's lives were pretty difficult. Cunning folk played a role in their communities. They were the ones there to grant prayers for the harvest to give you hope. They gave ointments to help stave off sicknesses, especially if you couldn't reach a doctor. And they even helped with curses by the fairy folk. Now, while fairy folk don't play a huge role in our story, knowing who they are helps us to understand how 17th century Lancashire people viewed and interacted with the world around them. 17th century people had so many of the same questions that we do today. When something went awry in their life, they would think, why me? What did I do to deserve this? How could this happen? Today, we may answer that in our heads with, oh, it's meant to be, or someone has a bigger plan for us. But looking for answers in the 17th century, people often found them in fairy folk. While it's hard to define fairy folk, because they were thought of a bit differently in many communities, in general, they were magical beings that lived in a hidden world different to ours, but then also interacted with us in our own as well. They could be people you knew in life that passed away, or completely otherworldly beings. And openings to their world were often spotted in small caves or wooded areas, places that felt enchanted, places described as entrances to the fairy world. In 1677, one Yorkshire schoolmaster explained in his book that for the most part, the common people, if they chanced to have any sort of epilepsy, palsy, convulsions, or the like, do presently persuade themselves that they are bewitched, forespoken, blasted, fairy-taken, or haunted with some evil spirit. Fairy folk could really mess up your life if you were on their bad side. So people often had small rituals to keep them happy. And if things went wrong, they could usually seek the help of cunning folk for an enchantment or prayer. So they needed them there. Whether it was to help protect them from the fairy folk or to help with a general medical problem, cunning folk were often closer to each community than a medical professional. I mean, literally, physically, they were closer. And for those on the edge of society, they were much cheaper, too, making them an important person in rural 17th century life. 
While it may be strange to our modern ideals, cunning folks' prayers had often been no different from those recited in church or recommended by a priest for private contemplation, as one expert said. However, now, post-Reformation, many of the prayers traditionally used by cunning folk were controversial because they retained their Catholic content. In fact, some of them still even used Latin words. This, this was the atmosphere looming heavy in the thick gray clouds over rural Lancashire in 1612. The damp hills of the northwest were dotted with hidden Catholics, cunning folk, and fairies causing mischief. But there were people keen to stamp that out. Men whose Protestant determinism was going to drive the heretics out of Britain. Whether they were Catholic, malevolent witches, or both, there was no room for them on this island anymore. An hour north of Manchester, at the base of Pendle Hill, tucked into a forest, is a small community of northerners. In March of 1612, Alison Devis, a young teenager from Pendle, was walking down a path when she came across a peddler, a sort of walking salesman. Alison was from the local Devis family, and her family was not very well off. Well, they were poor, really. When she met the peddler on the road, Allison asked him for some pins. Well, it seems likely that she begged for them rather than asking to pay for them. Either way, the peddler, John Law, did not give them to her and carried on walking. Only moments later, he fell to the ground, unable to move. Allison Devis had cursed him and it had worked. Allison believed that her powers, that the words she said had caused John Law to become injured, and she felt strong guilt over this. Hurting someone with witchcraft was considered maleficium, and as Allison knew, it was bad. And while there were the government and royals dead set on rooting this out, the ordinary person would have been afraid of this as well, even someone who was used to magic. You see, it wasn't such a stretch for Allison to believe that she had successfully cursed John Law. Magic ran in the family. Allison lived at Malkin Tower, which is not an actual tower like you're probably picturing right now, but more likely it was a small, rundown farm building. She lived there with her mother, her 14-year-old brother James, her 80-something-year-old grandmother, known as Old Demdike, and her half-sister, 9-year-old Jeanette. And Old Demdike had been known to be a practicing cunning woman for nearly half a century. Allison's guilt weighed on her, and this led her to confess directly to John Law what she had done. And she... She really thought she had used her powers to harm him. John Law did live on, but his son decided to report the incident to the local Justice of Peace at the time, Roger Noel. The Justice of the Peace was the person who would decide how the law would work in each case, 
They would research the case, speak to witnesses, and then apply the correct punishment for each offense. And in an anxious countryside, Roger Knoll was ready to apply the law. And this? This is where things seemed to spiral a bit. Allison, who admitted her guilt freely, was brought in for questioning under Roger Knoll. And Allison, again, confessed. And really, that's where the story should end. But instead, Allison also confessed to something else. She claimed to know a witch. A witch who had killed before. A real malevolent witch. Her neighbor, Chaddix. The accused Chaddix was around the same age as Allison's grandmother, Demdike. She was also in her 80s and the head of her household as well. She lived with her daughter, Anne, not far from Malkin Tower. Chaddix, now accused by Allison, may have had long-standing grievances with the Devis family. Allison claimed Chaddix had killed her father, as her father had given her a bit of oatmeal every year until the one year he didn't, which also happened to be the year he died. To the Devis family, this may have seemed too big a coincidence to forget. Chaddix and her daughter Anne turned around and accused Allison's grandmother, Demdike, the known cunning woman. So in April, Allison and Demdike and Anne and Chaddix were arrested by Roger Knoll. With four accused witches arrested, less than a month after Allison met John Law on a path, Roger Knoll was just getting started. All four women were sent to Lancaster to live in a tiny prison cell, waiting for their trial in the Lancaster Assizes. By Easter, eight more were accused of witchcraft and arrested. And it's partly a case of wrong place, wrong time, and partly a case of not in the right place at the right time. It was decided that every good Protestant well, they would surely be in church on Good Friday. And in an attempt to keep tabs on the people, churches and people were told to take note of who was, and more importantly, who wasn't in church that day. This turned out to be a problem, not just for the witches, but for Catholics, who may have been attending secret services that day. Elizabeth Devis, the daughter of Demdike, who had been arrested, and the mother of Allison, who had been arrested, well, she arranged a gathering on Good Friday. And the purpose of this isn't concretely known today. It was claimed to be a gathering of witches. And it's always mentioned that James Devis stole a sheep for this gathering which has nothing to do with witchcraft, but it's clearly an important black mark on the family's demeanor. It's a side note on their morals, a judgment on their person, and James was certainly not making many friends by stealing from neighbors. And someone was ready to step up. Someone was ready to list the names of people present at Malkin Tower on Good Friday people who should have been in church. 
the names of neighbors that attended, the names of people who this person saw practice witchcraft, not just witchcraft. Witchcraft intended to hurt someone. Malevolent witchcraft. Well, this someone was a part of the Devis family. But also outside of it a bit as well. Nine-year-old Jeanette Devis, the daughter of Elizabeth, the granddaughter of old Demdike, and the half-sister of Allison. Jeanette accused her own mother, Elizabeth, her half-brother, James, along with Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John Bullcock, Jane Bullcock, Alice Gray, and Jeanette Preston. All but one of those were taken to be imprisoned for trial in Lancaster. But the one person who wasn't sent there wasn't off the hook. Jeanette Preston was from just across the border in Yorkshire, so she was sent to be tried in York. These seven people joined the original four in the small cell in Lancaster. And seven plus four, as you know, makes eleven. And eleven makes for an uncomfortable stay in a small room. With the accused witches rounded up, it came time for the court cases. It was time to try these witches. The way courts worked in 17th century Britain is a bit different from now. Four times a year, local country courts held the quarter sessions, where the most minor cases were heard and judged. The most severe cases were passed on to the Assizes, which were set up periodically in the seven circuits across the UK. The Pendle witches were tried at the Lancaster Assizes for Maleficium, using witchcraft to harm. The trial began on the 18th of August, 1612. The star witness was nine-year-old granddaughter of the accused Demdike, daughter of the accused Elizabeth, and half-sister of the accused James and Allison. While Allison had admitted guilt previously, Allison being the one who cursed John Law when she came across him on the road, Elizabeth and James remained adamant they were not guilty. Her whole family was on trial when Jeanette was brought into the courtroom on the first day to testify. To testify against her own mother, her mother understandably began to wail as the young child entered the room. Pain, confusion, sorrow, anger. There must have been so many emotions pulsating through the room. Jeanette began to cry. This innocent young child being yelled at by her mother. She asked that Elizabeth be removed from the courtroom. And she was. Then, Jeanette took center stage. 
she stole the attention of the room. Standing on top of a table, she wove her story, wove her testimony. Jeanette described the events at Malkin Tower on Good Friday. She was even asked to pick out those she accused in a lineup of people and did so. She could prove she knew who they were. And this was proof enough. She had seen them there. She was a hero in the courtroom. A young girl willing to root out evil, even in her own family. If the court was interested in proving witchcraft existed in this area, this was exactly the kind of testimony they needed, even though it came from a child. Children were not normally allowed to provide the evidence in a case, but in King James's demonology, he wrote that the highest treason, the treason against God, should be testifiable by children. And when the king says to do it, you know you've got the go-ahead to do it. The king believed in the instance of witchcraft, the innocence of a child was exactly what was needed. And Roger Knoll wasn't about to ignore this child who was ready to accuse so many. Especially not when the king was declaring that those who let witches escape or do not carry out their punishment with the utmost rigor, can be assured they will be abandoned by God to the mercy of witches. Roger Knoll would not be at the mercy of witches. The trial went on into the 19th of August, where, after two days, Jeanette's testimony delivered the fate of the 11 accused. And the verdicts weren't good. All but one of the accused were found guilty. This includes Alice Nutter, who came from a fairly well-off family compared to the Devises. Someone who didn't tend to run in the same circles. Someone who probably wouldn't have been hanging out at Malkin Tower very much. But Alice Nutter was from a very Catholic family. On August 20th, nine people charged with witchcraft were hung in Lancaster. Old Demdike, who was also found guilty, had already died in the small cell while waiting for trial. And Alice Gray was the only one who got away innocent. Jeanette had sent her family, her entire family, to the grave. While Allison Devis's words may have caused a man to fall as she thought, Jeanette's words sent four of her family members to the gallows. Rooting out heretics in the north of England, a foreign land to so many in the government and certainly to the royalty, was a messy business. And had John Law not suffered what was most likely a stroke in March of 1612, they may have never found such a hotbed of heresy. 
Had Allison Devis not believed in her ability to curse? Had Jeanette felt more loved and supported by her family? Had those accused not turned around and pointed the finger? Roger Knoll would have never had his glorious northern witchcraft trials. He had successfully found and rooted out evil in the wild, untamed north. The government was one step closer, one step closer to controlling their domain, even the parts they didn't understand. You may be wondering how we know so much about a trial set so early in the 17th century in the rural north, and that is a very good question. The clerk to the Lancaster Assizes was kind enough to take detailed notes throughout the trials. Thomas Potts then transformed his notes into a book, and it was a hit. The wonderful discovery of witches in the county of Lancaster was dedicated to Thomas Nevitt, the man famed for capturing Guy Fawkes, the heretical Northern Catholic who tried to blow up Parliament only seven years before. Also, not unimportant, Thomas Potts was given a better job by King James at the end of this all. And we can't ignore who he was trying to please when he wrote out his notes. Roger Knoll, a man with no formal law training, sent 10 people to their graves. Justice of the Pieces required no formal law training. Instead, they had books. Books that could let a Justice of the Peace know how the law was supposed to be used and how it had been implemented before. In 1618, Six years after the Pendle Witch Trials, a new and exciting book was published. The Country Justice by Michael Dalton was a one-stop shop to help the busy Justice of the Peace understand how to handle a wide range of cases, well, everything really. And of course, it had to offer up a suggestion for witchcraft trials. It needed to show that rooting out evil was possible. The example used in that book? Yeah, I think you're with me on this. The 1612 case in Lancashire. The case that proved that a child could be used as an integral part of a witchcraft case. Jeanette Devis wrote history. And she would continue to do so. As the country justice made its way across the Atlantic, it opened up a new chapter in its life. While the witchcraft frenzy was soon to end in the UK, as the new king, Charles I, found that some accused witches were innocent, testing the fervorous belief that had been there before, the colonies were a new land. And like the wild north of England, they were quite isolated and poised with the kind of fear 
frustration and misunderstood neighbors that are conducive to hysteria. So as one young girl came forward to accuse someone of witchcraft, what did the book on every justice of the pieces shelf say? Let the children speak. And in 1692, Salem, Massachusetts, boy did they. Northern Podcast is written, edited, and produced by me, Caitlin Badger. Special thanks for this episode go out to Callum Badger. If you would like to support Northern, please leave a review on iTunes. And if you're interested in finding out more, check out the website at northernpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening as always, and I will see you in the next one.